Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, so brief preamble here to outline a change to the podcast. So first off, I want to express a profound appreciation to everyone who has supported this podcast, our diligent commune team, all of the brilliant teachers and authors who have lended wisdom to it, the mission-driven brands who have provided financial support, and most of all, you, the listeners who have helped turn this modest endeavor into a powerful platform for ideas. In my various writings and exhortations, I have been a vociferous critic of the ad revenue model, which has misaligned incentives in journalism. And while Commune's brand partners have always been in alignment with our message of well-being and sustainability, I want to try to produce this show without any advertisement. Quite simply, I think it's a better experience without ads. This doesn't change the reality that there are hard costs associated with the production of this show. And moreover, there is significant time expenditure. I am committed to helping to build a world where well-being can flourish, and I have to allocate my time accordingly in pursuit of this mission. I never want anyone's financial wherewithal to stand between them and the ability to glean wisdom from the guests on this show. So this podcast will remain free to anyone who is interested in listening to it. That being said, if you have the financial ability to support our efforts, I would be grateful if you headed over to onecommune.com support. You can contribute a few bucks or join Commune membership and get unlimited access to all of our courses. Thank you, and it's an honor to do this work. Many of you may receive my weekly Sunday Commusing article where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the sociopolitical. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it as a bonus episode. So today's podcast is derived from the story of my grandfather, his painful loss, and his journey to compassion. If you're interested in receiving my weekly article, sign up at onecommune.com. And if you're not totally sick of me, you can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. So without further ado, Here's this week's commusing, entitled, Good Grief. Good Grief Ever since the baby was born, Terry never quite felt herself. The weight she gained during pregnancy gnawed at her. The fabric of her marriage was threadbare. Her degree in social work hung cockeyed and dusty on the wall. She had seen a doctor who had scripted her a second-generation antidepressant, and now it was as if there was a thin gauze layered between her and the world. Colors were muted, the clatter and the buzz of the city dampened. One day, while slicing a cucumber, she nicked her middle finger. She didn't even notice until she spotted the burgundy stains on her blouse. Maybe she had married Ben too soon. Maybe she should have gone back to school as planned. Maybe. Maybe. One August day, 
Terry decided to bike to Lincoln Park. She strapped little Susan into the baby seat and mounted her cruiser. The summer sun scorched. She veered right on Grant off of Larrabee. The wind and the heat. The boisterous silence of the city street. Their crowded emptiness. Their empty crowdedness. It spun her mind. Where Grant met Clark, a high curb lipped the avenue. Maybe she saw it. She worked the pedals, the chain turned, the handlebars rattled, the front tire smacked the curb, and Terry sailed off the bike seat. Time briefly stalled as she hovered above the madness and then floated to the asphalt with an unbearable gentleness, her mind finally clear. As per their nightly ritual, Adeline and Arthur sat at the card table playing Pinochle, two glasses of scotch sweating atop marble coasters. Back in those days, you answered the phone when it rang. Arthur trod across the room and grabbed the handset. It was Seymour. Arthur crewed with him on weekend sailing expeditions on Lake Michigan. Arthur, turn on the television. I think Susan's on the news. Adeline, turn on the TV. Seymour, I'll call you back. Sure enough, Susan was on the five o'clock local news with a caption underneath that read, If you recognize this baby, please call 312-746-6010. Adeline scrawled the number down on her score sheet. Arthur dragged the rotary clockwise with his index finger as swiftly as he could. An administrator at the Chicago Police Department answered. In his typical straightforward manner, he said, This is Arthur Kaplan. My granddaughter is on the news. There was a pause on the line. A detective grabbed the phone. You say your granddaughter is on the news? That's right. Is this your daughter's daughter? That's correct. I'm very sorry, Mr. Kaplan, but I have some bad news. Some of my first vivid memories were of my Aunt Terry. She visited us when we lived in Santiago de Compostela, Spain, in 1973, we toured the old church together and played hide-and-seek behind the massive rocks in the courtyard. She was spry and playful. My father and his brother felt an effusive, if custodial, love for their sister. But no one cherished her more than her father Arthur, my grandfather. The loss of his beloved daughter was eviscerating. I wonder if there is any greater pain than burying a child the confounding disorder of never beholding the full expression of their being, life's singular canvas torn away mid-brushstroke, a work unfinished, a redemptive hope beyond your own life dashed. The horror of it leads us to forget that, in death, the pain is often mercifully transferred from those who suffer to those who remain. Papa, as we called him, remained outwardly stoic in his grief. He stood quietly in the pain with no umbrella. He was part of what Tom Brokaw dubbed the greatest generation, those who grew up during the deprivation of the Great Depression and served their country valiantly. They possessed a steely resolve, rarely showed emotion, and never wore jeans. Being a consummate real estate man, Papa negotiated with himself in the wake of Terry's death. 
If only he had called that morning, been more present, provided more support, insisted that she stay in school, protected her better, kept her away from that man, fill in the blank. Inevitably, against his will, he surrendered. He was bidding on a building with no address. Terry had left the bargaining table. And in this acceptance, a benevolence toward himself cautiously emerged within him a self-compassion. The emotional boot camp of his loss propelled a type of spiritual evolution for my grandfather. Recognizing the suffering of another may exist along a spectrum from pity to sympathy to empathy to compassion. Papa had little patience for either end of pity, which he found demeaning to both provider and recipient. Sympathy may be understood as a lesser form of empathy, a cognitive and emotional acknowledgement of someone's pain, but with no requirement of agency. Empathy is the donning of the emotional clothing of another, but this psychological state has no valence. It can be understood as emotional contagiousness where someone's sadness may trigger your sadness, while another's joy may elicit your own joyfulness. Papa made the full and arduous trek, and over time, came to embody compassion, loving kindness in the presence of another suffering in a manner that actively seeks to alleviate that suffering. He was never morbid. On the contrary, he lived in a state of great expansiveness and generosity. For the balance of his life, he doubled down on love. He was the fulcrum of all family reunions and excursions. He put every child and grandchild through college. Adline dubbed him Mr. Possible because he made everything in our lives possible. I visited Papa once in Miami. It was June, the air hot and wet. Papa woke up early, the rising sun, his alarm clock. He strode to the porch, slid the glass door shut behind him, and stared out over the vast ocean. I watched him for a long time from the kitchen as he stood quietly, motionless, the sun on his face. Finally, I walked out and stood beside him. He raised his hand and put it firmly on my shoulder. It's Terry's birthday, he said softly. I looked at his glassy eyes still fixed upon the distant horizon. He was too proud to let me see him cry. Pulsing rhythmically on the side of my neck, his hand shed the tears. It was the only time I ever heard him utter her name. Despite the profound love he shared with all of us, the pain was still unspeakable. We filled the chasm of his heart with love's rushing water, but there remained a damned estuary where the land lay arid and fallow. When he passed and soared above the vacillations of space and time, my sadness was tempered. He would now know what had previously been unavailable to know, why she had to leave in the manner she did. I've been reminded recently of my grandfather's hero's journey by the approximately 6,387 daily emails I received from Grandpa Joe asking me to chip in two bucks. Somewhere tucked far beneath the curated folksiness of these robo-emails is a similar tale of grief. I ask the listener to please hover above the political invective for a moment. It will still be there when you land. 
On December 18, 1972, Biden's wife, Nalia, and their three children were Christmas shopping. They all loaded in the car and were headed home, tree atop the roof, when a tractor-trailer broadsided them. Nalia and daughter Naomi were killed instantly. Sons Bo and Hunter sustained severe injuries. Biden, 30 years old and recently elected to his first Senate post, was in Washington. Like my grandfather, he would receive news of the tragedy on a phone call. Bo would later die in 2015 of a rare strain of brain cancer. I make no comment on Biden's politics here, but simply render this humanistic observation. He appears most authentic, most energetically at home when providing comfort to those in pain. In her landmark work, On Death and Dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross famously delineated the five stages of grief we experience after the loss of a loved one. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. In denial, by pretending the loss does not exist, we decelerate the emotional processing of the overwhelming pain. In anger, we feel free to express strong emotion without vulnerability. Anger, more socially acceptable than admitting we are scared, allows us to express emotion with less fear of judgment. In bargaining, we grope for some perceived semblance of control in a situation where none exists. We might ruminate over our interactions with the person we have lost, recall times when we have said things that we did not mean, and wish we could go back and behave differently to alleviate any pain we may have caused. In depression, panic ebbs, the emotional marine layer burns off, and the loss is visibly clear. We often pull inward, recoiling into a cocoon of mourning. In acceptance, the pain remains visceral, but we no longer resist reality and cease our attempts to pretzel it into something that is not. Anyone who has experienced this process of grief will know that it does not unfold in a linear fashion. We are tossed turbulently between these stages. We get stuck, break through, and break down, while slowly, inexorably, crawling towards acceptance. In his recent book, Finding Meaning, grief expert and friend David Kessler weaves a sixth stage into processing grief. Purpose. At the end of sorrow's long winding hallway, there is a door which opens onto the opportunity to channel suffering into compassion, munificence, and the betterment of the human condition. This magnanimity may take different forms. Candace Leitner, for example, founded the nonprofit Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, after her 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, was killed by an inebriated driver. My grandfather found purpose in his unwavering commitment to family. In our quest to find redemptive meaning in loss, we make amends, forgive, launch charities, volunteer, and even run for president. Man's search for meaning, as chronicled memorably in Viktor Frankl's eponymous text, can be found in three places, in love and relationships, in creative work and self-expression, and in suffering. The last category, of course, is the most challenging. 
In his 1946 book, chronicling his experiences as a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, Frankel takes on Freud in this remarkable passage. Sigmund Freud once asserted, Let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger. With the increase of the imperative urge of hunger, all individual differences will blur, and in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unstilled urge. Thank heaven Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. His subjects lay on a couch designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. There, the individual differences did not blur, but on the contrary, people became more different. People unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. Frankel describes in vivid and moving detail the efforts of select prisoners to provide their last piece of bread or boots or shoelaces to those in greater need. Despite conditions unimaginable in their horror, there were those in the camps that found profound compassion, loving kindness in the presence of pain, meaning in their suffering. The grief many of us experience is rarely as extraordinary as the death of a child or the Holocaust. But though our quotidian sorrows are mundane by comparison, all colors of grief are undeniably real and can cause profound anguish. The fracture of a romantic relationship, a friend moving away, the loss of a job, the sale of a family home. These realities and a host of others point to an unavoidable and integral component of the human condition. Pain is inevitable. The psychologist Eric Fromm wrote, to spare oneself from grief at all cost can be achieved only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness. In short, to know grief is to love. Would we have it any other way? I likely don't know you, but I am confident in this. Every single person listening to this has a story that would turn me inside out and make me weep. We are unified in heartache, but ask yourself, what will you make of this pain? For your feeling of grief is simply the acknowledgement of your ability to love. I pray you find meaning in your suffering like Papa. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to share your story with me, I am here at jeffk at onecommune.com.